You may be seated, and I invite you, as you are taking your seats, to go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Last week we had the privilege of going through a bit of an introduction to this book, and we'll review a little bit of that. But this morning we actually get to dive into the text, and I'm so excited to jump in, dive into this text and start working our way through the revelation of Jesus Christ. How many of you in here have read uh, Pilgrim's Progress? Raise your hand. Pilgrim's Progress. My uh, kids have read a, a little illustrated version. Uh, just a, a couple weeks ago, there was a movie that um, was made. It was put out by a group called Revelation Media. and uh, it, It's a great movie. It was a great adaptation of the book. We watched it at the Calkins house one night, and then we watched it the next night back at our house, and we got to watch it over and over again. It was free for about a week and a half, and then it wasn't free any longer, and so we watched it a number of times. And, and as we watched it, and as I rem- was reminded of the book, Pilgrim's Progress, it, it took me back to a, a certain section in that book that really reminded me of the entirety of the book of Revelation. Uh, for those of you not familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, it was written by a man named John Bunyan, who was born in 1628 near Bedford, England. He was the oldest son of a tinker, uh, a man who would just fix pots and pans for a living. Uh, The the family that he was born into was of the lowest order, no education, and yet John Owen, who had an enormous education, when asked by King Charles II why John Owen, a learned man, would love to listen to John Bunyan, an unlearned man, John Owen replied, May it please your majesty, could I possess that tinker's abilities for preaching? I would most gladly relinquish all of my learning. Even though he was an unlearned man, John Bunyan knew the scriptures. In November of 1660, John Bunyan was arrested for preaching. He was an unlicensed preacher of the gospel. You had to conform to the church in England at that time, and he did not conform. He was preaching the true gospel, and because he was preaching the true gospel, he was imprisoned. He was sentenced to three months in jail, which turned into 12 years because he would never recant of proclaiming the word of God of the gospel. And so he decided, I'll stay in prison until uh, God would do something to let me out, but I will not stop preaching the gospel. And during those 12 years, his family nearly starved to death because he, would not, he was not allowed to give them money. Uh, he was, uh, and wasn't allowed to work to earn money. His wife lost one child due to premature labor because of the stress of what was going on. John Bunyan had uh, incredible bouts with anxiety and depression, Uh, He was specifically uh, depressed when he thought of how helpless his blind daughter Mary was and how he could not take care of her. And it was in the last six years of prison, under great distress, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, that he gave himself to the task of writing the book Pilgrim's Progress, written in prison. And it's a book that still bears the distinction of being published and produced more than any other book in all of human history except for the Bible. In fact, when China's government made it accessible to their people, uh, they gave Pilgrim's Progress to their people as an example of what Western culture looked like. The initial printing of 200,000 copies of it in China sold out in three days. They just could not get enough of it. It's an allegory. It's a beautiful allegory. It's It's a literary form of storytelling. It's filled with vivid illustrations, beautiful word pictures, And one of my favorite is when the protagonist, a man by the name of Christian, finds himself in the house of the interpreter. 
John Bunyan writes this, Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter again took Christian by the hand and led him to where there was a fire burning brightly against a wall. Now Christian was about to enjoy its warmth when he was gruffly pushed aside by an angry-looking man with two pails of water. Out of my way, fool, the man set one bucket down and then tossed the contents of the other on the fire, shouting angrily, out, cursed flame, out, I say, and out again, take that. Next, he picked up his other bucket and he tried again to douse the flames, but no matter how much water he cast upon the fire, he could not do more than make it choke or sputter for a moment and then the flames would rise again, higher and hotter than before. Oh, what's wrong with this miserable, worthless water, grumbled the man. Out, foul flame, out, cursed light, out, out, out. What means this, queried the puzzled pilgrim. Well, the interpreter said, the fire that you see is the work of grace burning in the heart of one who loves God. He who seeks to douse it is the devil. But it seems to me that in spite of his best efforts to put it out, the fire burns higher and hotter, said Christian. Ah, yes, laughed the interpreter, and the reason for that thou shalt soon see. Whilst he goes off to refill his bucket, come around behind the wall with me. So he took Christian behind the wall where he saw a noble-looking gentleman standing with a vessel of oil in his hand. Christian soon perceived that he was often pouring oil into a golden tube that passed through the wall and supplied the fire with fuel. Then Christian asked, and what does this mean? This is Christ whispered the interpreter reverently, he, by continually applying the oil of his grace, sustains the flame of love in our hearts. And because of Christ's constant help, it matters not what trials the devil may pour in upon us. The oil of the Spirit floats in above them all, and the flame of love burns brighter still. Aha! said Christian, thankfully, this is a good lesson for me. And did you notice how the Lord stood behind the wall to maintain the fire? Said the interpreter. Ah, yes, I, I wondered about that. Why so? The interpreter said, to teach thee, dear pilgrim, that even when you cannot see him, Christ is always near. No matter what doubts may come or fears assail you, your faith may burn brightly still. Then when I am to be tempted the most, exclaimed Christian, I can rest assured that he who supplies the oil is still near at hand. I, I, he is the one who sticketh closer than a brother. And rest assured, dear Christian, that he who pours the oil will never suffer the waters of affliction to overflow thee. And then Bunyan wraps up this section by saying, And so they left the fire burning brightly by the wall. And as they were going, they could still hear that old devil shouting, Out, cursed flame! Out, out, out! This is the very thing that John is going to do for us in the book of Revelation. He's going to show us the trials that the devil is going to bring upon Christians to tempt them and to try and steal away their faith. And yet he's going to take us behind the wall, as it were, 
to show us Christ is there. He's supplying the oil to keep that flame going so that no matter what trial comes, we will be victorious. There's a dragon in this book who is bent on destroying God's people, but he will not, he cannot, and God will reign victorious. And so, as we begin our study of this book, I want us just to always go back to the entire purpose of this book, and we'll see it even in these first three verses this morning. We are being taken behind the wall to see Christ working behind the scenes to accomplish His purpose in bringing you and me safely to Him in glory one day. So let's read these verses and pray and ask God's blessing on our time as we dive in. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his slave, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed or obey the things which are written in it, because the time is near. Father, the time is near, and because of that, we would do well to listen to what John is going to tell us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the message that was delivered to him by the Father, by the Son, through the Spirit, to the angels, in the visions that he saw. God, it's so easy for us. We we like fantasy. We like um, enormous uh, displays of power. and We love comic book scenes where they're turned into movies and we're just in awe of the grandeur and the scale and the scope of what's happening. And so it's easy for us to come to a book like this and just want to see that and, and see the wars and see uh, the, the prophecies and the predictions of things to come and get bogged down in those details. And Father, I, I, I ask you to work in our hearts to not let us get bogged down. It's not the point of why this book was written. No one knows the day or the hour. Nobody knows the coming of the Son of Man except for the Father alone. We don't want to try and predict the day of Christ's return. We don't want to try and uh, find the time frame of it. We, we want to listen to John writing, the time is now. We are in the moment of the end times, and we need to be prepared, and we need to prepare others. And in the midst of our affliction, in the midst of our persecution, in the midst of our suffering, and in the midst of our trial, you have never left us. You never will leave us. And we can rest assured in the confident promises of of our God that you will win. So, Father, I pray that as we begin this study this morning, you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law and enable us to walk according to them. By the power of the Spirit, according to your word, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, we began our study by just an overview. Seven reasons why I wanted to study, why we as a church are studying the book of Revelation. Let me just give them to you by way of review. Revelation number one is for our benefit. It's written for us. It's to bless us. 
Number two, we can understand Revelation. Number three, Revelation reminds us that there's no middle ground, life or death, heaven or hell. Number four, Revelation gives great encouragement and exhortation for a church that's under attack. Number five, Revelation provides a perspective that is cosmic and transcendent. It'll take our eyes off of the everyday affairs of life and and put them on to the glory and majesty of God's eternal plan of redemption. Number six, the uh, Revelation encourages us to reflect on our own worship of God. There's a lot of worship of God, whether through song or through awe or through speaking in this book. Number seven, finally, Revelation reveals the glorious culmination of God's redemptive story. This is the end of the story. This is the finish of those four points that we studied with our brother Marty. Creation, fall, redemption, and the recreation, the, the new creation. This is where all of human history is headed. And so if we lose the end of the story, we miss out on where God's going with the end of human history and the blessing that comes with it. So that's why, seven reasons why we wanted to study as a church. Seven reasons why I wanted to go through this book. And now I want to give you three reasons this morning for why John's writing. Three reasons why John explicitly is giving us his book. So I got to do some speaking last week on my heart for this book. And now as we dive into these first three verses, we will see three reasons why John is writing. Three reasons that the revelation of Jesus Christ is being given to us. And number one, revelation is written to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ. Revelation is written to reveal the glory of of Jesus Christ. We're just going to string together a long sentence over the the course of these three points to give us just a a theme of this entire book. Chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the title of the book, by the way, the revelation. We talked about that word revelation, uh, apocalypsis. This is uh, the unveiling. It's the opposite of apocryphal to cover mysteriously. Nobody can know this except for a select few. This is apocalypse. This is something that's unveiled, revealed. If we are fuzzy in our understanding of that, of this book, it's not because of this book. It's because of our understanding because this book is just unveiling everything. It's not trying to keep anything hidden or secret. It's unveiling the majesty and the glory of Jesus and his plan of redemptive history. So we have an unveiling. We have a revealing. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26 uses this word apocalypsis. Do not despair, for there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. Apocalypsis. This is something that's going to be revealed. Uh, in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this Greek word is used in Daniel chapter 2, which, by the way, we're going to look at over the course of our time together in this study, because Daniel 2 is very similar to what Revelation is talking about, and I think Revelation comes out of what Daniel 2 is, is seeing. And we see the word there in Daniel 2, reveals, apocalypsis. Notice it's the revelation, in the singular. It's not multiple revelations. Uh, Many people will say, let's study revelations. Uh, It's not revelations, it's revelation. Let's study revelation because it's the revealing of one person. It's one revelation, and it's of Jesus Christ. But that raises a question for us uh, grammar nerds in here. I'm not ashamed to say I'm a grammar nerd. That raises a question in my mind. Is this the revelation of Jesus, as in it's about him, or is this the revelation of Jesus, as in it's from him? Those are two different things. In in English, those are two different things. In uh, Greek, those are two very specific different things. There's one called the objective genitive. It's the revelation about Jesus. There's one called the subjective genitive. It's the revelation from Jesus. He's handing the revelation to us. So which is it? Is he being revealed? Or is he the one doing the revealing? 
And I believe that this has a, a, a heavy, weighty matter for the entirety of the book. So that's why we have to understand it. To answer that question, if you read the book of Revelation, you realize he is absolutely the one being revealed. This is a revealing of him. This is... <laughs> Siri lost track on what we're doing. <laughs> it's okay, Siri. We have the rest of the sermon left to go. <laughs> Jesus is the central figure. He is the one that's being revealed. Just by way of a, a quick summary, and I encourage all of you to go home and to read Revelation from start to finish in one sitting. Read the book because you'll see throughout the book, you'll see the answer to this question. Is, who is this book about? Chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is the one that's given the threefold name. He loves us. He redeems us. Chapter 1, verse 6, he alone is worthy of our praise. Chapter 1, verse 7, he is coming back. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 20, he is revealed in a majestic, glorious vision. Chapter 2 and 3, he's the one addressing his churches. Chapter 5, he's the one who has the power to open and the authority to open the scroll. Chapter 6, he inaugurates the judgments that are to come. Chapter 12, he is the one who defeats the dragon. Chapter 19, he is the one who comes bearing the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Chapter 21 and 22, he is the second Adam who brings new creation into existence. This is all about him. He is the one who is uh, revealing, is being revealed in everything that's happening. But he is also the one who is handing down this vision to John. If you see in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, he is the central figure being revealed in this book. But God gave Jesus to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. So God the Father gave to Jesus a revelation about himself that was given to John by God the Father through Jesus, through angels. So Jesus absolutely is doing the revealing. So is Jesus the one revealed in this book, or is he the one doing the revealing in this book? And the good news is we have an answer for our understanding of this, not only through the text, but also specifically in Greek. There's something called a plenary uh, genitive. It's both. It's not only objective and subject. It's both compared together. They're working as one. This is Jesus being revealed in the text and Jesus doing the revealing of himself and the glorious plan of redemption. We not only have the title in this first section, we have the author. God himself is the author. God the Father gave to Jesus to show his slaves the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel. So God the Father gives to Jesus. Jesus gives it to an angel. Angel gives it to John. John gives it to us. So we have the human author, John, and we have the transmission from the Father, the spiritual author, the Holy Spirit's working through the inspiration that he gives to John. So we not only have the title, but we have the author. And inside of verse 1, we see that Revelation is written to reveal the glory of Jesus. He is revealing it himself. He is the revealer, and he is the one of whom the revelation is about. Number two, let's add on to our little sentence here. Revelation is written to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ to his slaves. To his slaves. You can see that in the middle of verse 1, to show his, my Bible says, bond servants. It's just the word doulos that means a slave. God is writing to communicate the revealing of Jesus Christ in his glory to his slaves. And he's doing it by his angel to his own slave, John. Now, why isn't it translated slave? Why is it bond servant? There's two reasons why. The first reason why it's translated bond servant and not slave is because 
there, there were two different ways that a slave would be acquired back in uh, the Bible times, back in New Testament times. Uh, there was a, a way that you could voluntarily give yourself to somebody and say, I, I don't have a job, I, I'm, I'm homeless, I need help, and I will give myself to you, and I will serve, I will be your slave, I will work for you. It was voluntary. Um, that's the majority of what's happening. It's a voluntary slavery. There was a second type of slavery where somebody was kidnapped against their will and sold into slavery to somebody else. By the way, that is explicitly condemned in the Bible. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, uh, the kidnapping of somebody in order to sell them as a slave, that has no part in the church, Paul says to Timothy. Don't do that. Don't allow that to happen. If somebody says, I need work, and I can live at your house, and I'll be your servant, let that happen. But you don't go out and kidnap people and sell them into slavery. So one reason why this is used is there's an aspect of it where the, the author is trying to communicate this is, uh, to a certain degree, that softer voluntary. I give myself out of love. But another reason why, and we'll see this, if we had more time, we could go all over the scriptures to see Jesus uses the language of slavery constantly to, to speak of buying us out of the slave market of sin, giving of his blood as payment to ransom us. Even that word ransom, to buy us out of the slave market of sin. So this wasn't something where we just signed up voluntarily and said, I'd like to be a part of God's kingdom. This is something where we were hopeless and helpless and had no way to get to God on our own. And Jesus does all the work to buy us and to save us and to bring us into his household. But for some people, and understandably so, that's a difficult, politically incorrect way to speak. Uh, that we are slaves? No, slavery has ended. We don't want to call one another slaves. And so, this word was softened. Bond servants instead of slaves. Doulos, it's just very clearly slaves, but it was softened because we wanted to be politically correct. The publishers of the Bible didn't want to refer back to slavery. We're out of that. We don't want to go back to that. The only question I have, I agree with everything that they're saying, but the only question I have is, was it any more politically correct to call somebody a slave back in Roman times? I don't, I don't think it was any less uh, or, or more politically correct. I, I think it was the exact same idea. There were slaves. There were slaves that were being uh, brutally treated. So I don't think we need to soften it with that word bondservant. Jesus is the one who chose us. He loved us. He purchased us. He called us out of the slave market of sin. And then he says, you are no longer slaves. You are sons and daughters. He elevates our status. But here, John is going to gladly refer to himself as a slave. I'm a slave of my master, and he's a good master. And he calls us slaves as well. To show his slaves the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. So we have the title and the author, and then we have the subject matter, the audience and the subject matter. The audience here is, is believers, the slaves of Christ. And we have the subject matter in verse 1. What is this book all about? It's about the things which must soon take place. The things which must soon take place. If you're a Bible underliner or circler in your, in your Bible, you have to circle that word, must. That's one of the best words in the entirety of the Bible. These things must 
take place. Remember John chapter 3, just as Moses, Jesus says this, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's going to happen. I have to die. So too, the revelation, we see the unfolding and the unveiling of all of human history, and God says it will happen. It must happen. It cannot not happen. It's going to happen. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, this is an amazing word that you hang every single thing that you do on this peg. These things are going to happen. If you're an unbeliever, this word must make us weep. Judgment is coming. There is a day when you can no longer choose to repent of sin and turn and trust in Christ. It will happen. It must happen. It's going to happen. I love that word must, but very close next to that word must is a word that uh, right next to it that gives us a lot of question marks in our mind. Must soon, must soon. We love must, but we kind of scratch our head with soon. What does soon mean? This is 2,000 years ago that John's writing. It didn't happen very soon after John wrote, or did it? Some people try to fit soon. They give it different definitions. Here's a couple of them. Some people say that John meant soon by what he wrote, soon, but he just got it wrong. He thought that these things were going to take place very quickly after he wrote, but they didn't. He just got it wrong. Uh, The Bible doesn't allow for that. There's no mistakes in the Bible. There's no errors in the Bible. It is inspired by God. It is inerrant with no errors inside of it, and it is an infallible book. Some say soon just means swift, that all the things in this book will happen quickly, that just one by one by one by one, once it actually comes time for these things to happen, they're all going to happen very fast. Uh, Yes, I think that they will to a certain degree. We will talk about the tribulation when we get there. But I don't think that that's the meaning of this word soon. Some people say that it could mean at any moment. These things can happen at any moment. Now, that's not an untrue statement. That's very true. That's why Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief in the night. You don't, you don't plan on thieves breaking into your house. I know on my calendar, next Friday night at midnight, thieves are going to come and break. No, it's happening when we wouldn't expect it. So that's a true statement. But I don't think that's what this word soon means. Some actually say that most of the events actually took place after John wrote. Things did happen soon after. Some say that all of the things happened right after. I have a very hard time with that because I'm not living in a place with no curse, no sin, no death. Uh, we, all, we obviously are not living in the new heavens and the new earth yet that is described in Revelation. So what does soon mean? Soon. There's another word that we're going to see over and over again. The time is near. Soon. Near. It's coming up down the road. It's not close by, but it's coming. And we're in a period of time in which it is coming. And again, we have to go back to the Old Testament to understand why John is writing these things are going to happen soon. Just write down Daniel chapter 2. We're not going to have time to go there, but write down Daniel chapter 2. Actually, write down verse 28, because verse 28 is identical language. If you were to go there, Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, Daniel's given a vision. You remember the vision? There's the statue. You've got the different sections, gold, uh, silver, bronze, iron, and then a rock that's uh, made, just comes out of the mountain, and it knocks over everything. And there's a kingdom that is going to be established through that rock. That rock is Christ. He refers to it himself. He is the cornerstone that the builders reject. So that, that rock's going to come in and destroy 
the kingdoms of the world and establish his own kingdom. When is that going to happen? Daniel says that this vision of this statue that Jesus is going to come in and conquer and destroy and then raise up his own kingdom, he says, quote, these must take place in the latter days. So Daniel says this vision of what's going to happen, it's not soon. It's, it's in the latter days. It's going to take a while for this to happen. To use the word that our brother Marty has been using over and over again in our uh, study of how to study the scriptures. This isn't a completely different epic, right? This is a, a different season, a different time frame. So Daniel says this vision is of things which must take place in the latter days. And John says these things must take place soon. Now, what's the difference between Daniel and Revelation? What happens in between them is the cross. Jesus has died. He has inaugurated his kingdom. He has been raised from the dead to establish his dominance over Satan, over sin. He has disarmed the rulers and the powers and the principalities. He has taken control and he is bringing people into his kingdom. But it's not yet an earthly kingdom. This is why we use the phrase a lot at our church. It's already, but it's not yet. It's already been inaugurated through the work of Jesus at the cross. The kingdom is now, but it's not yet. It's still coming, as we'll see in Revelation chapter 20. There is a physical, literal kingdom that's going to show up on earth, and then there's an eternal one after that that we're not in yet. So John says the kingdom that Daniel was talking about that's going to come, Daniel said, it's later. It's, it's not in my lifetime, and it's not anywhere near my lifetime. And John says, we're in the last days. We are in the epoch of this happening. We are in the, the age in which this is going to happen. Yes, it is imminent. Yes, it is also a process. And they'll work together. By the way, John the Baptist, he struggled. Jesus said there's nobody born of, of man that's greater than he is. And you remember when John the Baptist is put into prison, John the Baptist says, is Jesus the Messiah? Or should we look for another? Because I, I think you're failing in your messianic duties. And here's Jesus' cousin who said, I'm going to prepare your way. I can't even stoop down to untie your sandals. I'm not even worthy to do that. And then he says, time out. <laughs> Maybe I got this wrong. Kingdom isn't being established. You're not conquering Rome and people aren't really following you or believing in you. Should we look for another? Over the course of human history, since John has written the book of Revelation, people have said that. Are these things actually going to happen? Is Jesus really going to make good on his promises? Is he coming back? And John writes to say, oh, we're in the season. We are in the age in which it will happen. So we need to make ourselves ready. And the bottom line is, once again, as I prayed earlier, we don't want to ask the question, well, when is he coming back? What are the signs? We need to know. We need to figure this out. As if we can do, like we talked about, the, the headline hermeneutics, where we just look at the newspaper. Oh, it's probably going to be five months from now because we can see this, 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 and this happening. We're not doing that. Because we don't know. We just know that it's soon. We are in that age currently. And we know what that should produce in us. Without knowing the day that Jesus is going to return, just the, ver the, the mere fact that we know Jesus is coming back and it can be any day, it's soon, 
that should, ask, that should cause us to ask the question, are we in his kingdom? Are we citizens of his kingdom? Forget the question of when is he returning? What day is it going to be? Is it going to be morning or night? No. Are you in the kingdom of God? Because he has a kingdom that he has already established through his blood, and he has a kingdom that he's going to bring with him to establish and rule and reign on the earth. And if you are not a part of that kingdom, you will be cast out forever into eternal hell. That's the application of must soon take place. Have you embraced God as king? You will know if you have. How do you know if you're a citizen? How do you know if you're a follower of him as king? Do you obey him? Do you submit to his laws? Do you know his laws and allow them to govern every move that you make? Do you cherish his kingship over your life? Have you bowed your life in submission to him? So John says these things must soon take place. And so Jesus sends and communicates it to him by his angel, to his slave, John, who testified to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. End of verse 2. By the way, that's very helpful for us to know. This is a vision. All that he saw, he's going to see a lot of symbols. He's going to see a lot of things in vision format that we're going to have to understand in a vision in the apocalyptic genre that we're in. But verses 1 and 2 tell us our first two points this morning. Number one, Revelation is written to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ. And number two, it's written to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ to his slaves. But it doesn't end there. John gives us one last purpose that we have to add on to this sentence to fill out verses 1 through 3 to give us an an understanding of why this book is in our Bibles and why we're studying it. Number three, and finally, Revelation is written to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ to his slaves for their blessing. For their blessing. Verse three, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it because the time is near. There is a blessing that is proclaimed over those who read it and those who hear it and those who do it. This is the first, by the way, of seven beatitudes in Revelation. There are seven blessings that are given in Revelation. One is in verses one, uh, chapter one, verse three. Blessed is he who reads, hears, and obeys. The second is in uh, chapter fourteen, verse thirteen. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, so that they may rest from their labors. Number three is in sixteen, verse fifteen. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes ready for Jesus coming like a thief in the night. Number four is in uh, chapter 19, verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Number five is in chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Number six, uh, chapter 22, verse 7. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And the last beatitude in Revelation is chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. This book is all about blessing. It's all about blessing. Blessed is the one who reads. This is a great description of what would happen in a New Testament church. We didn't all have copies of the Bible in uh, first century uh, Israel. You don't all have copies of the Bible. One person would get up with a scroll, open it up, and read. And the Bible says here, that that person is blessed. Blessed is he who reads. 
And then everybody else would sit there with no Bible in their lap. They just listen to hear the words, and they are blessed. And they're words of prophecy. Prophecy, we, we tend to think prophecy equals predicting the future. It can mean that. Usually in the Bible it doesn't, by the way. In the Bible, when you see the word prophecy, usually it's not telling the future. It's just saying, this is what God has said. Uh, Thus saith the Lord. Most often in the Bible, you see a prophet giving a prophecy, and it's not, you know, in 2021, this is what's going to happen. It's just, hey, you guys need to get your act together because God's going to judge sin. You already know that. Here's the verse that you know that from. Let's repent. Most of the time in the Bible, prophecy is just, thus saith the Lord. It's not predicting the future. Now, obviously, there's prediction of the future events in this book, but there's also prophecy of just, thus saith the Lord in this book. God's telling us to do things. Now, why do we find it so challenging to study this book? I I believe I said this last week, but I want to give us a little bit more understanding of why it becomes so hard to understand this prophecy. Revelation is as confusing to us as our understanding of the Old Testament is confusing. If you know the Old Testament really well, by the way, like these Jewish uh, believers and hearers would know, then when they hear John describing things that are happening, they can take it right back to the illusion that he's referring to in the Old Testament. There are 400 verses in this book, 400 verses in the book of Revelation. There are 500 different allusions or cross-references to the Old Testament in 400 verses. In other words, the average in the book of Revelation is more than one allusion or cross-reference to an Old Testament passage per verse. So every verse of this book, on average, has more than one, 1.2 something, 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 uh, allusions back to the Old Testament. John rarely quotes the Old Testament, but he's alluding to a lot of things that happen in Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Joel. So that's why when we go through this book of prophecy, we need to take it in the the worldview and the lens that the original recipients would have of understanding the Old Testament and letting John's vision give just three-dimensional aspects and technicolor to what the Old Testament was saying. So it's blessed is the one who reads it, blessed are those who hear it, but it doesn't end there. It isn't enough to read the Bible or even just hear the Bible. You have to heed the things that are in the Bible. Obey the things that are written in it. Most of this book is not about Gog or Magog, and if you don't know what that is, that's okay. Most of this book is just about you and me. It's about what Jesus tells us to do. And it's a call to obey. At the very outset of this book, there's a call to obey the things that are written in the book. But that raises a question, and if you're asking it, I'm glad you're asking How do we obey a prophecy with predictions about future events? There's no command in that to obey. If God says, next week something's going to happen, obey me. How are we to obey that? It's just a prophecy about what's going to happen, a prediction about the future. And number one, that tells us that we're misunderstanding Revelation to a certain degree. If we're asking this question, we're misunderstanding the, the thrust of revelation. But number two, 
Every single portion of our Bible is aimed at life change. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we know that this tells us something, equips us somehow in order to obey. Every portion of the Bible that speaks about future events gives us something to do. And I want to just end our time by giving us three examples of that in the Bible. Three examples of future events that the writers will tell you, because we know this is happening, we live differently today. There's obedience today because of predicted events in the future. First, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know this blessed chapter about the resurrection and the afterlife. Chapter 15, verse 50. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Now I say this, brother, and this is Paul writing, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will all, not all sleep, we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed because this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, O death, where is your victory? Or death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of, of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's speaking of future events, when my perishable body will put on an imperishable glorified body that has not happened yet. And yet, even though he's giving us a future event, he says, verse 58, therefore, because of what I just said, here's an area of obedience. Be, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Because of that day, you live this day differently. Because you know what's promised on that day, this day changes. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, another passage about end times, about what's going to happen to our bodies in the end about death and about resurrection. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have passed away in the Lord, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Because if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. This has not happened yet. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. None of this has happened yet. And yet Paul says in verse 18, Therefore, because of what we know is coming on that day, comfort one another with these words today. That day changes this day. Last one, just go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. You know this passage. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 
see or behold how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be. But we know that when He appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. That hasn't happened yet. But verse 3, John says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself now just as he is pure. That day changes this day. Brothers and sisters, you will know if I am misunderstanding the book of Revelation, if I preach a sermon that has zero bearing on what you do today, you will know I have mishandled the text. If we're just talking about future events without saying, and what does that do with us today? Because John tells us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, you obey this prophecy. You can obey this book. How do we obey it? Even just this morning, we know that these days must take place. Jesus is being revealed in all of his glory and the plan of human history and all of redemptive history. It will come to pass. There's no stopping that. No matter how hard the devil tries, no matter how far away you think you may be running, there's no stopping God's plan of salvation. And so, since we know these things must soon take place, that day must affect the the decisions we make today. I mean, just as practically and simply as if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking about the children's ministry meeting that's going to be happening right after we're done tearing down, and you think, "Eh, I don't really need to go to that, and you've never been involved in children's ministry, and now you realize there's a day coming when these kids are going to give an answer as they grow up, they're going to give an answer to God of what they've done with the Word of God. We need to give to them a vision of who Jesus Christ is compellingly, winsomely from the Scriptures. We can't just say, oh, we're just babysitting kids. No, this is about teaching them the revelation of Jesus so that they would see a picture of Him that would be so compelling that they would not help, they couldn't help themselves but say, I, I want to love Christ. I want to follow Him. This changes everything. And the entirety of this book will take us behind the wall to show us Christ. Just like John Bunyan described, behind the wall to show us, oh, Jesus is there in the midst of your suffering and failures, in the midst of your persecution and doubts, in the midst of your trials and sorrows. Jesus is there stoking the flame of your affections for him and he won't let it die. And he's coming back. And that grumpy old man with those two pails of water trying to douse the flame, there's one day where God will say, enough. No more. That's why we love heaven. That's why we can't wait for heaven because never again will I have to ask my own heart, "Mm, do you love Jesus? Are you following him because you love him? Are there areas in your life where you don't love him? I'm going to love him perfectly one day. So since we know what's going to happen on that day, we live today radically different. That's how we obey the words of the prophecy. And to that end, I'm going to ask God to help us to do that this day. But I I want just to further cement with an exclamation point. I want you to just sit. You can read uh, the words of the song. I want to play a song and just let the words pour over your heart to hear even some of the things that we're going to study about in Revelation that we know are going to happen on the last day and say, because of that day, how are we going to live this day differently? So let me pray and ask God's blessing to confirm these truths to our hearts and then we'll listen to this song. 
Father, we thank you so much for the revelation of Jesus Christ, the one who revealed it to John and the one of whom it is revealing the glory and the majesty. We want to be changed. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we want to comfort one another with these words, with the truths that these things must, will. There's no way they can't take place. Father, we can't wait to see your face. Oh God, may it be today. As John says, when he sees this vision, okay, make this happen now. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But God, until the day that we see your face, make us faithful and change our hearts and enable us to compel others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May that day impact this day.